1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll also be looking at Matthew 19. How many people get the uh, Orlando newspaper? A few? Okay. I do. Valentine's, this is actually the day after Valentine's Day. I don't know if, if you did, you saw this. It says Valentine's Day milestones from I do. It says happy nursing home couple proves it's never too late for love to I don't. For some couple, Cupid's Day spells D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Um, I don't really have time to read you both articles, but it's interesting that right there on this, uh, this article that's uh, written from a Valentine's Day perspective, it talks about both things as if, um, as if they uh, both are maybe of, of equal importance. And, and actually, let, let, me, let me read you this, this one thing here. Basically, uh, Valentine's Day means flowers, chocolates, and expressions of love, but not in courtroom 16H. And it goes on to say that uh, this uh, judge spent Wednesday morning ripping Cupid arrows from the hearts of former lovers who came before him to finalize their divorces. And uh, the last, the last uh, paragraph talks about how they wished this guy, uh, the judge, happy Valentine's Day. And he said, well, I, I plan to really enjoy it with my wife. I, I plan on having a great Valentine's Day. And uh, the person that he was talking to who was getting a divorce said, me too. And he kind of smirked and kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's how our society looks at divorce, it's just, you know, it's really the final chapter of marriage. Let me ask you something. Um, how many people here are married? Raise your hand. How many people here have been married? Um, go ahead and keep your hands up for a while. Have been married a year or less? Okay. I mean, I'm sorry, take your, take your hands down if you've been married a year or less. Okay. There you go. Leave them up if you've been married longer. Uh, take your hands down if you've been married five years or less. Ten years or less. Fifteen years or less. Lisa and I were coming up to 15 in, in uh, July. July, right? No, yeah. <laughs> Tw- just kidding. 20 years or less. 25 years or less. Wow, look at this. We've still got a few hold on, honors here. 30 years or less. 35 years or less. 40 years or less. Finally, we... Oh, nope. 45 years or less. 50 years. How, how old are you? 50 years or less. 50 years or less. Finally. All right. Woohoo! That, you guys, that's a great thing that we have some, some uh, marriages that have lasted so long. But the reason that we applaud is because it's rare. Because that it's rare in today's society. Our society today has the same climate, the same kind of attitude about marriage and divorce in general that Corinth did. Right? If you've been with us, we've been studying through the book of Corinthians and Paul's writing to a church that's right in the middle of a society exactly like ours. That basically says, look, marriage is great, you know, get married uh, as soon as you can, you know, for whatever reason. And divorce, yeah, it's okay too. That as though divorce was the natural end of marriage. It was very clear to the Corinthians what, what the, the city of Corinth thought. And it's very clear to us, I think, what America thinks of divorce. In general, America has replaced the words as long as we both shall live with as long as we both shall love. 
And love is a subjective thing in so many people's minds that it becomes, well, that means as long as you're still attractive to me or whatever it might mean. We know what America thinks of divorce. We know what Corinth thought of divorce. But isn't the most important question, what does God think of divorce? That was probably the main question and a lot of corollary questions that these guys in Corinth sent to Paul. They wrote to him, what does God think of divorce? We're surrounded by it. Everybody accepts it. Should we? And I think among other questions, there were some of these. Has God ever approved of divorce? Or if he doesn't approve, does God ever allow for divorce? What if I was divorced and then I got saved? What if I was saved and then I got divorced? What about separation as opposed to divorce? And I think, in my mind, as you look at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul basically says, look, now let's finally get to the questions that you asked. So you get a picture of of guys sitting down writing questions. Okay, uh, this is going to Paul. Anybody got any other questions? I think there's probably another hand goes up and somebody says, what about me? Um, I'm married to another Christian, but what if I find someone more spiritual at church? Then I has my husband. Can I lose my loser husband and marry this real spiritual guy? And maybe there were husbands that say, now, I know of a lady who is so much more spiritual than my wife. God wants me to marry someone spiritual, right? And another hand goes up. What about me? Now, I was saved, but my husband wasn't. So now I'm married to an unbeliever. Aren't I unequally yoked? And another hand goes up. What about me? What about my situation? It's important for us to know that the book of that the chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 doesn't uh, cover every single instance, and it's not the whole textbook on marriage, because Paul is addressing specific questions that we think we can reconstruct from his answers. But there is a lot to learn about marriage and divorce in our text today. So let's get, dig right in. Uh, verse. 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Paul speaking to the Christians in Corinth, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. These guys had a lot of questions. And Paul speaks to the question, really, I think he's given a real general overarching statement. This is really important for us. Look at verse 10. The beginning of verse 10 states clearly what God thinks of divorce. Verse 10 says, a wife is not to depart from her husband. And the end of verse 11, skip over to the end of verse 11, it says, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. What does God think of divorce? It's very clearly stated and with great authority behind it. Look at verse 10 again. The beginning he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. We've seen that word command. If you've been with us for a while, you know the word command there is paragelo, and it means to give uh, orders, to send down orders from above. Basically saying, look, it's like an army. Uh, I get my orders from, from someone and I send them to you. He's passing down marching orders that he's directly received from the commander. And actually, Paul even goes further because he says, verse 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. What Paul is saying is, actually, Jesus has already spoken about this issue. 
In Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see as we go that God has spoken very clearly about this. Malachi, God speaks very clearly about this. But Jesus himself, God in the flesh, has spoken about the issue of marriage and divorce. Matthew 5, if, you're, if you want to study this on your own, because there's a lot to cover here. Uh, if you want to study this on your own, you can write down Matthew 5, Mark 10, and Matthew 19. These are the places where Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce. Matter of fact, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at this a little bit in depth. Matthew 19 is one of the places that Jesus told us what his dad thinks of divorce. Matthew chapter 19 says, Now it came to pass, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? First of all, it's interesting that so many had come to Jesus to be healed, but the Pharisees had come to test him. What, what was going on here was there was a debate among the Jews. Now, in ancient society, the Jewish culture had pretty much the strictest code when it came to divorce. Um, but even the Jews had kind of been infiltrated by the thinking of the world. And at this point, there was two thoughts of thinking. There were two rabbis that were, uh, had different views on what, what makes a divorce okay. One, the rabbi's name was Shammai. And basically he said, look, you can only divorce your wife for reasons of sexual immorality. If she has committed adultery against you, you are free to divorce her. This wasn't too popular of you. As you can imagine, Hillel was the other rabbi. He said, look, there's a, a portion of scripture in Deuteronomy that says that you can divorce your wife if she is unclean in your eyes. And for him, the way he interpreted that was, well, I mean, has she burnt the toast? Did she, did she mess up on, on a project you gave her? Oh, she's unclean in your eyes. Yeah, you can unload her. So. There's probably guys that are following Hillel here, and they're like, okay, uh, well, let's see. If I just leave the oven on just a little bit longer, then it's really her fault. And it's crazy what they were doing. They were looking for reasons to be divorced. So they come to Jesus, the Pharisees, testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What does Jesus say? Verse 4, and he answered and said to them, have you not read? That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I always love it when Jesus says, Have you not read? Right? These are the Pharisees. These are the Old Testament scholars, the, the, the big dogs that are supposed to understand the word. And he's like, um, Did you ever try checking the Bible? He quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And he's talking about what his dad, what our heavenly father thinks of divorce. From the very beginning, Jesus says, God's perspective on marriage and of divorce, excuse me, has been very clear. You guys might remember the story in Genesis. All the times that God said, it is good, right? He said, let there be light. He's like, hey, that's good. He created the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars. Every time he said, hey, that's good. And he created man and said, that's not good. It actually says that the first time that, that God ever says, it's not good. And all the women are like, preach it on, brother. 
What he meant was, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. He says, I will make him a helpmate, a soulmate, one who is perfectly comparable, perfectly compatible with him. God designed us, Jesus says, reminds us, really. God designed us male and female to be joined together, husband and wife, in a committed monogamous relationship. Look at verse 5, Matthew 19, verse 5. Jesus quotes his dad and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you've been with us in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, you've seen, we've talked about recently, how marriage, and specifically the sexual union in marriage, is like the greatest superglue. Look at verse 6. He says, So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What does God think of divorce? They are no longer two. They are one. They are superglued. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man be so bold to separate. What God has superglued, what God has welded together, what God has turned into one being, Jesus says, you have no right to tear apart. What does God think of divorce? Actually, Malachi states it really succinctly. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. What does God think of divorce? He hates divorce. Now this is really, really important. Hear me. It doesn't say God hates divorcees. It doesn't say God hates divorced people. It says God hates divorce. If something is superglued, if two persons are welded together and you insist on separating what was one into two, what's going to happen? There's going to be tearing. There's going to be ripping. There will be jagged, painful edges on both sides of the tear. God hates divorce because he loves people. Because he loves you. God hates divorce because he loves those whom it tears, whom it rips. Now, we can kid ourselves into thinking that, by the way, I'm a product, if you will, of a divorced family. We can kid ourselves and say that we can make a clean break. But it never is so. There are always jagged, painful edges. There are always wounding and scarring involved. It affects your kids. It affects the two of you. God hates divorce because he loves us. What does God think of divorce? You can write this down. God always hates divorce. He always abhors abhors divorce. That's a word that starts with A because it kind of fits with the rest of my little outline. But God hates divorce. Now, go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it says, Paul says, Paul agrees with Jesus, who agrees with God the Father. He says, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, and skip over this next part for just a second, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. God always abhors divorce, but sometimes God allows divorce. Now maybe you're thinking, 
You're telling me that God allows what God abhors? God allows what God hates? Well, that's the story of the world. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but some will perish. That's the story of free moral agency. Because we have choices, there are things that God allows that he does not want, that he does not like. Now, look at with me at verse 11. It says, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, remember, Paul here is addressing specific questions. We have to reconstruct them from his answers. In this verse, it seems to me that he is talking about a a wife who has left her husband for unbiblical reasons. As you study the scriptures, and we, we looked at Matthew 19, if you were to go further, you see that there's two reasons, only two reasons that I can see, that are biblical supported reasons for divorce and then possible remarriage. One we will find in our text today. The other one Jesus gave directly. The one we find in our text today is called abandonment. We're going to get to that, okay? But the one that Jesus gave, the only uh, biblically supported reason that Jesus gave specifically out of his own mouth was that of being betrayed by adultery. Matthew 19, Jesus says, look, if your spouse commits sexual immorality, then God will allow for divorce. Notice I said allow. God never approves divorce but God allows divorce God never prefers divorce but he sometimes permits it God never recommends divorce but in two instances he recognizes divorce there's two and only two biblical reasons that allow for a divorce and then a remarriage now think about that abandonment adultery that that excludes every other reason That excludes this one. I just don't love her anymore. That excludes this one. There's just no passion in the marriage anymore. That excludes this one. He's a pig around the house. That excludes this one. The marriage is already dead. That excludes this one. We're already living separate lives. It excludes he's made really bad financial decisions. It excludes this one. We're always fighting in front of the kids. People use all these excuses to talk themselves into thinking that God is okay with it. For the Christian couple, all of those excuses are reasons to work on your marriage. They are not reasons to abandon your marriage, to rip it to shreds. So if the woman or the man divorces, separates for any reason other than abandonment or adultery, Paul says, verse 11, but even if she does depart, God realizes that people will make dumb, foolish decisions. Even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Divorce. God always abhors it. He sometimes allows it. And here's another one. He often makes allowances for it. That's hard to explain, but he allows it, meaning, look, I understand if you've, if you've been cheated on, it might be, not be possible for you to deal with it. He never recommends it. He, you, there are so many stories, stories in this room of people who have made it through that terrible hurt of adultery. He never recommends it, but he sometimes allows it. But here, verse 11, it's kind of like it's saying, look, this is not what God wants. But if you insist, 
Verse 11, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, I'm actually very glad that this verse is in here. At first, it's like, it almost looks like it's taking away from what God is saying. But to me, this, for instance, speaks, for instance, to the woman who is in the horrific circumstance of spousal abuse. What about physical spousal abuse? Does, does God demand that you stay in that home? Does God demand that you keep your kids in that home? Endanger them? I don't think so. Personally, I don't think so. The word in verse 11 for depart, notice it's different than the word divorce for the man. The word for the woman is different than the word for the man. This to me says, look, if you are in a physically abusive marriage, if you came to me and said, my husband is beating on me or my kids, you, I'm not sure if everyone in this room will agree with this, and that's okay. I stand before God with a clear conscience. I would tell you, get out. Get out quickly. Depart. But get out and get help. It does not say divorce. It says depart. Depart in hopes of reconciliation. And the Bible says if your spouse is a Christian then there is hope of reconciliation. I don't believe that any woman is called to be a punching bag for any man. But still notice verse 11 is still very restrictive, is it not? It says, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Are we hearing that? God takes this vow so seriously. He was there when you made your vows. He takes it so seriously that he says, even in the worst situations, if you need to depart, stay single and pray for your husband. Look for reconciliation. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. I would say to you, if that's you, if I'm speaking about you, I would say don't go back until it's safe. Don't go back unless it's safe, but don't go back on your vow either. And I would also say, If you're one who is suffering from physical abuse, the last thing on your mind should be getting married again. And you might think and say to me, well, that's restrictive. I mean, that's a really hard line. Well, the disciples agreed with you. I agree with you. Because they said back in Matthew 19, if you want to turn back, you can. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, if it's only acceptable to to be divorced and remarried when it comes to adultery, they say it is better not to marry. (laughs) These guys are like, wow, if this is really what you're saying, it's better not to marry. And now we speak to, I think the scriptures speak to the single person. That's precisely the point. Marriage vows are truly supposed to be before God. They are till death do us part. You need to understand if you're single that it might actually be better for you not to marry. Because Jesus said, look, it's given for some to be married and for some to be single. It's a gift. If you have the gift of being single, you need to be single. If you have the gift of being married and you're not yet married, then pray for that person. But don't go out and find the first person that you see and say, oh, well, you're a Christian? Okay, well, let's get married, right? So that we won't burn with lust because we saw in this chapter it's better 
to, to marry than to burn with lust. But let me tell you this. It is very, better not to marry than to burn with lust in a marriage. And then commit adultery and tear a life, tear a family apart. The point, the overarching point I hope you're understanding is that God pays attention to your wedding vows. He was there. He always hates divorce for what it does to us. He sometimes allows for divorce in the cases of abandonment and adultery. He often must make allowances for it because of the hardness of our heart, Jesus says. Verse 10 again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, Paul's going to address a whole other question, a whole other audience. Remember, it's like these guys were like, well, what about me? What about my situation? Paul turns his attention to a question now about a marriage between a believer there in Corinth and their unbelieving spouse. Verse 12, he says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Beginning at verse 12 there. Probably need to look at this. It says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say. What does that mean? I mean, does that mean that this is Paul's, just Paul's opinion? Some people have read this and said, well, you know, Paul's kind of just speaking off the cuff. He's like, I don't really know if God thinks this or what, but this is my opinion. Well, if that's true, if this is, if this is between inspired and uninspired, then we have a problem with 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16. It says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is not saying, look, this other part was inspired. This is just my opinion. This is not delineating between the inspired and the uninspired. This is delineating, listen, between the direct and the indirect. That is, that which Jesus has already clearly spoken about, Matthew 5, Mark 10, Matthew 19, and that which Jesus didn't actually address with his own lips. Here he will address them with Paul's lips, with Paul's pen, if you will. Here Paul basically says, look, I'm like the substitute teacher that comes in, right? I still have the authority from the the real teacher, my master, but he hasn't specifically told me this, but he hasn't specifically told you guys, but he's sent me to tell you. All right. The question then, the question at hand is, from the Corinthians, what about me? I'm a believer, but I'm married to an unbeliever. Am I not unequally yoked? And what are the ramifications for me? In his next letter, 2 Corinthians, which we actually know was the third letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. The first one is is misplaced, not misplaced, but it's not, not available for us. Paul says... In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, Paul, whenever he writes his um, letters, he's usually referring to something that he's already taught them or already mentioned maybe. I I really have no doubt that Paul has probably already used these words and he is reminding these. He's probably preached this message to the singles in Corinth. 
By the way, this is a great message for singles. If you're here today and you are single, God says through these scriptures, do not be unequally yoked. Remember, if marriage, if the sexual union is super glue, if it's truly forever, then the yoke, what in the world are you doing dating an unbeliever? What in the world are you doing contemplating being yoked forever with one who is so completely different from you? Paul was saying to the Christians in Corinth, look, will you superglue yourself? Will you weld yourself, a Christian, to one who worships a whole nother God? Will you, who are called God's righteousness, weld yourself to one who God calls lawless in his eyes? He says, what communion has light with darkness? It doesn't work, and you are headed for disaster. It's a recipe for disaster, and Paul was saying that to the Corinthians. But here's the problem. Paul like every preacher, experienced this. I experience this all the time. The wrong people hear the wrong thing from what I say. Paul is speaking to the singles and he says, look, do not be unequally yoked. You have no business doing that and you're in for trouble if you do. So what happens? Well, those who are married already to unbelievers go, hey, wait, I'm unequally yoked. Wait, I shouldn't be unequally yoked. I need to get a divorce. He's right. I totally got to get out of my marriage. (laughs) They're totally forgetting what God says about divorce. And they're saying, misunderstanding Paul and saying, oh, I need to get unyoked because God wants me to get a divorce. And many people do that today. After demanding their own way, saying, no, I will marry this, this unbeliever. I will marry this person who's unsaved. A few years later, they're miserable, and then they justify their divorce because they say, oh, well, people tried to tell me. They just tried to tell me, but I wouldn't listen, so I totally married the wrong person, so now I should get a divorce. These were the kind of questions that Paul was answering. Verse 12, he says, but to the rest, to, to those of you who are married to unbelievers, I say, not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Paul says, look, it's really simple. If you are married, you need to do what is in your power to stay married. If you're married to an unbeliever, the decision for divorce is not yours. It is theirs. If, for instance, if, for instance, since you got married, then you got saved, but your husband or wife didn't, what's actually going on is you are a new creation, right? The Bible says that you became a new creation. You are a new creature. In fact, your husband or your wife might actually say, well, this isn't the person that I married. And they would be right. Because you are a brand new creature. You are a new creation. In fact, you're a much better creature, creature, creation than what you were when they married you. But if they don't see it that way, well, that's one thing. But as for you, Paul says, your unbelieving spouse is exactly the person that you married. He never changed. The person that you vowed to never changed. It's the same person that you said, I will be with you forever. Till death do us part. The one that you made a commitment to for life, Paul says, that person never changed. You got what you bargained for. 
Well, then some people would probably raise their hand again and say, but Paul, wait a second. What about the fact that we are unequally yoked? I mean, what about this fact? Turn with me to chapter 6. Just back up a page. This probably disturbs some people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul is actually writing, again, being misunderstood, writing to those who would uh, visit harlots in the, the city of Corinth, which was very rampant. Verse 16, uh, chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. We talked about that. And the sexual union is like super glue. You become one with that person. So surely there were people in, in the body trying to get out of their marriage, saying this, if it's true that I'm a member of Christ and my husband or wife is not, doesn't that like qualify as corrupting the body of Christ because I become one with one who is not Christ's? Wouldn't our sexual relations, for instance, be unholy? Well, actually, Hebrews says that the marriage bed is undefiled. But look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. See, when it says the unbelieving husband is sanctified and the unbelieving wife is sanctified, it's not talking about salvation. Because look down at verse 16. Verse 16 confirms that. It's basically saying, look, it's still to be decided whether or not your husband or wife will come to know the Lord. It's not talking about salvation. So what's it talking about? Paul is saying, look, your marriage and your marriage bed, those of you who are married to unbelievers, is not defiled before God. In fact, wonderfully, it works the other way. If you are married to an unbeliever, you are a sanctifying agent in your home. What does the word sanctify mean? It means to be set apart. This is awesome, you guys. For those of you who have, and there are people in the room who are dealing with this, and it's a hard issue. This is awesome because what it means is you are the one who sets your whole home apart for God's purposes. This phenomenon isn't just here in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 30 Let me read to you some scripture here from Genesis chapter 30, verse 25 says, And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, you might remember Jacob uh, found himself in servitude to Laban. And Jacob says to him, finally says, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go for you know my service which I have done for you. Verse 27, And Laban said to him, Please stay. Laban tries to talk Jacob into staying. He says, If I have found favor in your eyes for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. The idea is that a believing spouse can bless the whole home, can sanctify the home. Genesis chapter 39, I could read you a whole portion there, but long and short of it is that when Joseph was in servitude to Potiphar, it says that the Lord blessed The Egyptian's house blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Everything that Joseph touched was good for Potiphar. You get it? What what he's saying is that a Christian, a believer, has a sanctifying, a blessing effect on his home. We know this. Jesus called us. He called us to be what? Salt and light. 
Salt is a preserving agent. We are, we are to be preserving agent and light in the dark place. And for some of you, that dark place is your home. If you are married to an unbeliever, your mission field is very easy to identify. That's why verse 16 says, skip down there. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Listen, if you're here this morning, I appreciate you guys staying with me here. If you're here this morning and you're married to an unbeliever, I don't envy you. But in many cases, if you're doing it right, I admire you. Rather than give up, God says, Paul says, stand in the gap. Pray for them. Be an agent of sanctification. Be salt and light in the home that without you would be decay and darkness. Now, how do you do that? For those of you who are in this situation, how do I be salt and light? How do I go about trying to save my husband or my wife? How do you do it? Do you do it by nagging them into the kingdom of heaven? Good luck with that. First Peter chapter 1. Again, if you are in a, a marriage that is unequally yoked. First Peter chapter 3. Did I say chapter 1? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Um, give us great wisdom. It says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're really a Christian, your spouse pretty much knows what you believe. They don't need more words from you necessarily. What they really need to see is the evidence of your changed life. They need to see that God has really made you kinder, gentler, sweeter. That kind of change, that quiet witness, roars at your spouse. But still, no matter what, it is still their decision. Because look at verse 15. It says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, this is amazing, actually, when you think about it. There are actually cases where the old them, your spouse, hates the new you. Where they say, look, I didn't bargain for this. I married a drunk and I want a drunk. I married a cheat and I want to cheat. I, I, I married a liar. Where's my liar? That actually happens. I can't explain it, but it does. And the only thing that you can't do, believer, in that situation, the only thing you can't do is change. You can't actually say, okay, I'll go back to being a drunk. I'll go back to being a liar. And the only thing you can't do is undo the new creation that you are, right? So if they will not stay, if they refuse to stay with you, Paul says, let them go. See, this is that second allowance in God's sight. Adultery, God says, look, I understand. There may be situations that you truly cannot overcome. But he says, I want you to try. He never prefers divorce, but sometimes he allows it. 
And here's the second one. If that person leaves you, he says, let him go. God has called you to peace. In other words, this actually answers a very direct question about fighting someone for a divorce. Romans 12:18 says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The key verse there is, if, as much as depends on you. If you're a Christian in an unyoked situation, in an unequally yoked situation, you do your part. You be kind, you be gentle, you be sweet. And when you fail to do it, apologize. You do your part, but the marriage, as with any relationship, is not a unilateral thing. It has to work on both ends. You can love on a person, you can sacrifice for them, and occasionally they will say, I still don't want anything to do with you. Paul says at that point, let them go. Don't drag it through the courts. Because he says, God has called you to peace. And look at this. In context, it's interesting how verse 16 reads. Paul says, let them go. He says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So you can read that two ways. You can read that as, you need to try to hold on. Because how do you know that you might save this person? But in context, actually, he's saying, Sometimes you may have to let go because how do you know what this, how this will turn out? It ha- only has to do with what God thinks. See, the truth is you don't know. So Paul says don't give up as long as it's in your power. But he says don't give up, but also don't beat yourself up when it is no longer in your power. If they leave, Paul says, and you are abandoned, how do you know whether they will come to know Jesus? You don't. You keep praying, and you don't beat yourself up. So there's a lot of questions that Paul's answered here today. But there's also a lot of questions he hasn't. A lot of questions that are raised. I mean, what about me? You might be thinking, I'm divorced. And, and I th- yes, it was biblical. I was the victim of adultery or abandonment. It seems to me, maybe you're thinking, am I free to remarry? I would think so, from my understanding, but don't. Don't go on me. We are to, we have access to the living God, the Heavenly Father. He is your dad too. Jesus said, this is what my dad says. And most of it's very clear, but there may be certain situations in in your life. Well, okay, the Bible says that I can remarry, I think. But does God want me to remarry? What about me? Or I'm divorced and it wasn't biblical. And since then, I have been remarried. What about that? Or should I divorce my second wife to go back to my first wife? These are the kind of questions Paul was was talking about here. And I think he gives us one good rule of thumb as we close. Verse 17, he says, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. What if I really blew it and I got divorced for the wrong reasons and I got remarried? Am I supposed to go back to that other one? I think verse 17 says, no, look, you would mess it up even more than it's messed up. He says, no, God has distributed to each one as God has planted you, grow. Wherever you are, as God has planted you, grow. Singles, married, divorced, remarried, wherever you find yourself, grow. 
Grow where you are planted. It may be a bed of roses. I hope it is. It may be a bed of thorns. You've heard the phrase, you've made your bed, now lie in it. I think there's probably a better way to say it. You've made your bed, now grow in it. I can't account for every situation in the room here. But God knows your situation. The situation you find yourself in is no surprise to God. He's been paying very close attention. He was there when you made your vow. He was there maybe when you broke your vow. One thing I know about God is that he makes masterpieces out of our messes. If we will let him. If you will change what is obviously contrary to his word, but otherwise stay where you are. If you're single, for instance, grow in your singleness. Don't look at the other side and say, oh, I've got to get married because I, I just can't stand the bed that I'm in. Bloom in the bed that you're in. And if God wants to transplant you into the marriage bed, he can do that. He's pretty able to do that. But why be miserable in the meantime, singles? Why wither as a flower in the bed that you're in when you could be blooming in the bed that you're in? And if you're married, let your marriage, whether it's your first or your second or your third, let your marriage blossom. How do you do that? Cultivate it. Feed it. Prune the weeds of bitterness, unforgiveness. Do whatever you need to do to grow where you are planted. God is not surprised at the spot that you find yourself in, and you can grow even where you find yourself today.